Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and in today's episode, I'm so happy to have back on the program Dr. Beth Darnell. If you missed her last time, she is a clinical professor at Stanford University in the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative, and Pain Medicine, and by courtesy, Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. She is principal investigator for $13 million in national pain and opioid reduction research projects. She investigates targeted pain psychology treatments she has developed to reduce chronic pain as well as pain and opioid use after surgery. In 2018, her compassionate community-based patient-centered opioid tapering research was published in JAMA Internal Medicine and received a national award. She is now leading a $9 million national study on compassionate opioid tapering. She delivers pain psychology and opioid reduction lectures and workshops nationally and internationally. She is the author of the Opioid-Free Pain Relief Kit, Less Pain, Fewer Pills, Avoid the Dangers of Prescription Opioids and Gain Control Over Chronic Pain, and Psychology Treatment for Chronic Pain. She spoke on the psychology of pain at the 2018 World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and she has been featured in major media outlets including O Magazine, Forbes, Scientific America, The Washington Post, BBC Radio, Nature, and Time Magazine. And in today's episode, we talk about her roadmap to pain-free living, uh, the importance of behavioral medicine, and pain modulation strategies to reduce pain suffering. So during the month of September, being it is National Pain Awareness Month, I really think this is the perfect episode to kick off the month. So thanks, everybody. Hey, welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Beth Darnell. I am honored to have you back on again. Karen, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And today we're going to be talking about a subject that is near and dear to my heart because I have had about eight plus years of chronic neck pain. And if anyone listens to this podcast, they know that I always talk about pain because I really want people to get the best information, evidence-based information to help them get out of those pain states and start living their lives again the way they want to. So let's dive in today about the role of psychology in pain treatment, because as we know, the pain experience is more than just what's happening with the tissues of our body. So tell us a little bit more about the role of psychology in pain treatment. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Well, it's interesting because when we feel pain in our body, it's easy for us to be focused on the local site of the pain and to only be focused on treating that. Um, But in fact, we know that pain is much more than just a noxious or negative sensory experience. The definition of pain from the International Association for the Study of Pain is that pain is both a negative sensory and emotional experience. So psychology is actually integral to our experience of pain. But curiously, we don't tend to treat it that way in our society and in our culture. And this is truly a lost opportunity. I mean, imagine if we treat 
half of the definition of anything, how can we be surprised when our outcomes are suboptimal? Absolutely. And I think a lot of even clinicians forget that because we sometimes get so focused on the physical part of it that we forget that that knee or that back or that neck is attached to a full person. Indeed. And you know, all pain is processed in the central nervous system. It's a product of the brain and the spinal cord, and it is highly, highly influenced by everything that's going on um, within our psychology. And that includes our thoughts, our emotions, the meaning that we attribute to the pain, the context in which we feel it, the attention that we give it. If we have trouble focusing on anything but the pain, all of these factors will either amplify our pain experience, worsen it, and lead to increased treatment needs, or if we optimize these factors, they have the ability to reduce our, actually, our actual pain intensity and, of course, our related suffering. And so this is really um, where the rubber meets the road with, with psychological treatment for pain. We want to empower people who are living with pain to best control their own experience. And by doing so, they need fewer doctors and fewer pills. Right, less medicalization of their lives. Absolutely. And how many clinicians receive training in pain? So in the neuroscience behind pain, in the psychology behind pain? Wow. Okay. So uh, I think, you know, the first question is just how many clinicians receive training in pain at all? It is a strikingly small number. So if, if you look at physicians and training in medical school, on average, data as recent as uh, 2012 was showing that physicians over the course of four years of medical school would receive between four and 11 hours of pain education. But this education was fragmented out so that you would just get a little bit of cancer pain information or information about neuropathic pain related to diabetes. So it was really parceled out and there was no comprehensive content on how to best manage chronic pain and all of the complexities that that entails. Now, when we take a look at psychologists, what we see is that pain education is almost entirely lacking from psychology curricula um, across the, the strata of education, from undergraduate to graduate to postgraduate, and even at the postdoctoral level. Certainly, the more specialized you become in your training, and if you're focusing on more medical populations, you will be more likely to receive some pain education, but it is strikingly lacking. So, for instance, you know, I have a doctoral degree in clinical psychology. I did not receive one hour of pain education throughout undergraduate and graduate training. In 2016, uh, myself and colleagues conducted a national needs assessment for uh, pain training in the field of psychology. And we surveyed 
2,000 key stakeholders. And what we found among psychologists and mental health professionals was uh, a striking lack of education. Up to 90% of psychologists and mental health therapists that we surveyed indicated that they wanted and needed additional training in pain because they had not received sufficient training to date. And here they are, you know, with, with probably half of the patients that they're treating living with pain and they're ill-equipped to address those patients' needs. I mean, that's a huge gap in the education. So where can clinicians go to get this vital information if they're not getting it in their sort of didactic or undergrad or graduate curriculum? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's the reason why I wrote my latest book, which is entitled Psychological Treatment for Patients with Chronic Pain. This is a high-level overview of evidence-based treatments uh, for pain. Um, It provides critical foundational information on the role of psychology in the experience and treatment of pain. There are uh, clinical vignettes, practical tips, um, key points, and it's chock full of treatment resources for clinicians and for patients. So I aimed to provide clinicians of a wide variety of healthcare disciplines. This I certainly aimed to target for mental health therapists and psychologists, but it's really suitable for physicians, physical therapists, nurses, you name it. All healthcare professionals um, have a vested interest in understanding how to treat pain best, how to treat pain comprehensively and at lowest risk. This necessarily involves integrating in psychological treatments and psychological principles into our treatment of all patients. So think of it as there being sort of two pathways. On the one hand, you want to learn more information so that you can steer your patients with living with pain in the right direction towards the resources and the skilled professionals who can address specific concerns and needs that they have. But on the flip side, much of this information can be integrated into your own care of your patients so that you're sure that you're uh, communicating the right information so that you are integrating in some of these pain psychology principles into your care, into your practice, even if your background is not psychology. And can you give us a quick example of maybe what one of those uh, psychology principles into the management of someone with chronic pain might be? Sure. So, you know, I'll give you two examples because they're quite, um, they're quite common. And one of them is uh, fear avoidance behavior. And so what this basically is, is when we feel pain, we're highly motivated to escape that pain and to reduce it. And what we quickly learn as humans is that one of the best ways to control pain often is to stop moving or at least to move less. And so what that will translate to for people is that, you know, they may even stop working or engaging in social and recreational activities, may stop exercising. Um, And so a person's world 
can get smaller and smaller quite quickly as they're doing less and less. Now, this reduction in movement is done out of self-preservation to reduce pain. Um, but what we know is that moving less in the context of pain actually predicts the worsening of pain over time because a person can then become deconditioned. Um, they're no longer engaging in healthy movement that engages um, endorphins, that is a buffer against depression, that gets them outside and in the sunshine, that gets them exposed to a lot of different pleasurable elements that actually buffer against pain. And so doing less is certainly detrimental. We want to help our patients move towards integration of appropriate movement given their health condition. This is where uh, psychology is vitally important because we are addressing um, specific fears about pain and movement that patients may have. And this is really best done in an integrated fashion with psychology and physical therapists working in tandem. So this is important information for psychologists to know. It's also vitally important, of course, for physical therapists to understand the psychological processes that patients go through so that they can shepherd them forward towards adaptive movement and adaptive psychological coping. Yeah, and I can 100% attest to all of that. When I had my neck pain years ago, I did everything you just said. Stopped exercising, stopped hanging out with friends, stopped doing things, stopped going, stopped carrying things, because everything in my mind was going to, I was going to make it worse because I just felt like everything was so fragile. Yes, yes. And that's so natural. I mean, hey, you're human, right? Yeah. You know, that's what it shows. And so come to find out the human body is hardwired to protect us against harm and threat. And it does a really good job. It pays very close attention to pain and motivates us to escape it. But once pain becomes chronic, we can't readily escape pain. I mean, you were, you're not able to run away from your neck pain. You can't um, simply stop moving and, and have that go away. Um, so that's the curious thing about the human body. While we're born motivated to escape pain, we're not born with the understanding of how to modulate pain or the distress that it causes us, particularly when it's ongoing mm -hmm. and we appear to have little control over it. The realm of pain psychology is helping move individuals in the direction of discovering the control that they do have over pain by enhancing their ability to modulate their pain, by enhancing their ability to identify and move towards goals that are meaningful to them, functional goals, so that they begin living their best life possible within the context of some complex medical conditions. Yeah, and I love that you said the role of psychology there is to move individuals to discover the control they have over pain. Because when you have chronic pain, you feel like you have no control. And so you do things 
to avoid the pain because that's where you can get your control from. So it's a way to gain control over a situation that seems hopeless at times. That's right. And, and so pain is so deceptive because it motivates us to do the very things that end up being often counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Once pain becomes chronic, it, it really requires uh, education to be able to discern what is the false signaling that your body is sending you that would be perfectly helpful if you had your hands, you know, on a hot burner or in some acute situation. But now that pain is chronic, it's like the rules are changed 180 degrees. It's a new language. It's a totally new game. And you need to be equipped with the right information and skills so that you can actually be helping yourself instead of unwittingly working against yourself simply because you don't have that right information. And this is where, as professionals, it's incumbent upon us as healthcare professionals to educate ourselves on this foundational information and to provide that to each and every one of our patients so that they become best equipped to be self-empowered uh, in the context of pain and, and in pain relief. That's really where we're trying to shape the trajectory of our patients towards pain relief and living well with ongoing pain. Right, because it doesn't necessarily mean 100% free every day for the rest of your life. Absolutely not. And how do you how do you talk to your patients about that? Because everybody, the goal is, well, I don't want to have any pain, zero pain, nothing, forever. Yeah. So I think that's a. I think being pain free is a really nice goal, and I don't discourage that. But what I say to patients is, this is a process, and you do not reduce your pain on one, you know, permanently with one day of practice. So think about it. You know, I I love the uh, exercise and physical therapy metaphors. So think about it if you wanted to get into shape and you decided to start an exercise program to get into shape. Well, you wouldn't go to the gym one day, lift weights, leave, and then say to yourself, well, I went to the gym and, uh, but I'm, I didn't get fit. It doesn't work. We know that it takes time. It takes daily practice, dedication, because we're literally shaping our physiology and our neuromuscular patterning is being shaped through our daily practice. This takes time for the results to evidence. And what we know is that the people who engage in the daily practice are the ones who get best results. The research shows that it takes about 10 to 11 weeks before we are able to see substantial changes in uh, in the central nervous system, in the brain, in terms of enhanced ability to control pain. Now, you can learn skills today that will enhance your ability to control pain, but when we're talking about lasting changes in the central nervous system, volumetric increases in the regions of the brain associated with pain control. This is evidenced over the course of a couple of months of daily practice. So it's important for patients um, and all of us to have to view this as a long game 
it's, um, it's just daily practice. Keep your eye on the ball each day. Trust that it's working and know that if you're putting in the time, you're going to get the results. But have some patience and give yourself a couple of months for your body to catch up with what you're doing every day. Yeah. And thank you so much for uh, giving us a bit of a timeline because I think that helps both the clinician and the patient. And I sort of do the same thing when I'm working with patients who have had pain for a long time. I use the same type of metaphor. I say, you know, if you were wanted to go out and become a really great golfer, you wouldn't just go out for one or two weeks and then give up saying, I, I'm not the best golfer. It yeah. takes time. You need a lot of practice, like you said, to get new movement patterns and to get the brain to adapt to a, a new way of living. And now, when you say I, when you say about um, the practice, I just want to uh, make clear to everyone that that's going to be different for every person. Correct? Yeah. yeah, indeed, indeed. And there's, you know, there are skills um, that are common to every evidence-based psychological treatment for pain. So I'll give you an example. Perfect. Um, the relaxation response. And relaxation training is a core underlying principle that is common to all psychological treatments for chronic pain. And in fact, if you um, are a physical therapist or work in a movement therapy, you're probably engaging this skill as well with your patients or with your clients. And this is a vitally important skill for learning how to gain control over your physiological responses to pain and also your psychological responses to pain, how distressing pain can be. And so literally by engaging uh, the relaxation response, typically this is done through diaphragmatic breathing or through slow, deep belly breathing, that being the gateway to the relaxation response. It triggers a whole cascade of physiological and psychological responses that actually counteract pain. So respiratory rate slows, heart rate slows, uh, muscles relax, there's vasodilation, the mind is calmed. And what happens in the nervous system is that it leverages the brain away from pain. It can help dampen pain processing in the nervous system. So think about it as being a skill that enhances descending modulation of pain. And Anyone can do this, and you can learn it really quickly. What's important, though, is to apply it regularly because you're not just looking for you know, a few minutes of relief with slow breathing. When you use this skill regularly, you are altering neuromuscular patterns that leads to these lasting structural changes. I like to say that you're learning to train your brain away from pain. And this is a core skill that when used regularly can help you get there quicker. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And I want to go back to one thing that you said uh, in that explanation of why that deep breathing or belly breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, whatever you want to call it, uh, part of the reason why that works is descending, descending modulation of pain from the brain. Can you sort of walk that back a little bit for people who maybe don't know what that means because they don't work in healthcare? 
Yeah. So naturally, when as humans, when we experience pain, we're going to experience it as highly distressing. Um, and and pain's just doing what it's designed to do. It's it's meant to alert us that there's danger or harm, uh, potential harm afoot. And we need to escape whatever is causing the pain. So pain necessarily gets our attention, and it does so very effectively. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that's very useful if you just stepped on something sharp or, you know, touched a hot burner. But once we have ongoing pain, keeping our attention focused on pain actually is quite counterproductive. The more that we focus on pain and focus on the negative aspects of pain, it actually leads to the amplification of pain processing in the nervous system. So this is where it's really important that we learn how to apply some skills that will help us disengage from that. So essentially shifting our attention away from the pain and from the negative aspects of it. And this is where the relaxation response is really helpful. Now, what's important to know is that it's not just distraction. The relaxation response does help us distract from pain, but it's much more than that because it's helping us cultivate physiological changes in the body that counteract pain. So I'm going to unpack that just a little bit. When you experience pain, it leads to a cascade of pain responses in the body. So your heart rate will increase, your muscles will tense, your breathing patterns will change, uh, your blood vessels will constrict. Essentially, you go into to some degree or another, it's a fight or flight response. And your body is preparing you to escape, to get away from the pain generator. Um, so of course, when you have chronic pain, you have a migraine, you have neck pain, you have fibromyalgia, you're not gonna be escaping anything. But that alarm, that pain alarm is still ringing and it's still registering in your brain and in your body as a problem that needs to be addressed. When it comes to ongoing pain, it's not just important that you know we treat the pain. We need to treat the pain the way that pain is impacting your body. We need to treat these automatic pain and stress responses. Because if we can gain control and train your brain and your body to uh, dampen its negative responses to pain, that will help steer your brain and body in the direction of enhanced relief. So these sort of behavioral techniques like learning how to apply diaphragmatic breathing, to apply the relaxation response, small self-soothing behaviors, um, learning how to shift thoughts that support better emotional experience around pain, all of these help steer brain and body towards relief. Because if we just leave our brain and our body to run its own show, we're going to be unwittingly moving in the direction of more pain. And nobody wants more pain. We just no. don't necessarily have the right information or skills. This is why it's so important to help our patients access this information. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like we can't talk about 
a conversation on pain without talking about some of the medication prescribed regularly to address that pain. So you've had a $13 million uh, pain research funding about your, so can you tell us a little bit about the newest award that focuses on opioid tapering and integrating behavioral pain treatment to facilitate the taper response? Because we can't talk about pain without talking about opioids, and we can't talk about opioids without talking about how to help people get off those opioids safely. Absolutely. So I've spent a large um, part of my career um, wanting to help empower people living with pain to need fewer pills, you know? And so sometimes people take opioids and are on them and they can be beneficial for select individuals. What we know on balance, on average, is that opioids are uh, medications that come with serious health risks and that they don't reduce pain or treat pain to the extent that outweighs those risks for most people. So what that means is that we need to focus on uh, alternate treatments that help patients treat pain at lowest risk. So this is where psychology plays an important role. Um, my team and I studied patient-centered opioid tapering and, and did a, a pilot study in patients in Colorado who were taking long-term prescription opioids. And we found that when opioids are tapered the right way, very slowly, and in a patient-centered way that addresses patients' fears and concerns and helps them feel safe and secure in the process of opioid tapering, we found that they tend to have a great result. They're able to reduce their opioids slowly over time without having increased pain. So this research was published in JAMA Internal Medicine earlier this year. It's an open access article if anyone wants to um, just take a peek at that. And that research was really important because it directly challenges many common perceptions that people have about long-term opioids, that people who are taking them for many years or even decades can't uh, reduce them or taper off of opioids without major uh, resources and support. Maybe you have to go inpatient, um, that if you've been on opioids at high doses, you'll have a poor result if you try and taper them. And that if you reduce opioid use, it's going to unmask unlying pain. Um, and in fact, our research results challenged all of these common misperceptions. We found that you can reduce opioids in an outpatient setting with minimal to no additional resources and without increases in pain. And in fact, we found that many patients, uh, their pain improved as they reduced their opioids over time. Now, when we take a look at what else changed in patients' lives besides pain and opioid use, we found that all of the psychosocial variables were pretty much remained the same, and this was expected because we weren't targeting that. And it's important for us to think about this because right now the country is very locked in a binary focus of opioids or no opioids. And 
you know, as a clinician and scientist, my main goal is to help reduce patient suffering and to help them live better with pain. So that necessarily uh, requires that we expand our focus. It's not enough to just help people reduce their opioids and risks. We want to help them get on with living their best life possible. So in this new uh, almost $9 million research award from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI, we are conducting a national study um, that will include over 1,300 patients taking long-term prescription opioids. And uh, almost 900 of them will be interested in partnering with their doctor to slowly reduce their prescription opioids over the course of one year. And we are testing within the context of patient-centered opioid tapering, we're, tasting, we're testing the added potential added benefit of evidence-based behavioral medicine strategies to optimize patient response to opioid tapering. So in a simplistic uh, in a simplistic description, everyone who comes into our study will enter a patient-centered opioid tapering program, and then we will be randomly assigning them to either receive uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for pain, or they will receive the chronic pain self-management program, or they will be assigned to usual care, meaning they, they get no supplemental behavioral medicine strategies. They're just doing the taper. And what we hypothesize, Karen, is that the patients who receive this uh, added um, psychological and psychosocial support will do better over the course of the year, that they will have better outcomes, not just for opioid reduction and pain reduction, but for mood and for function and for sleep and for ability to engage in, in recreational activities, the, the things that really matter to patients. Well, I, I, for one, definitely look forward to the results of this study because I think it will help patients who are on long-term opioids, give them a little bit of hope perhaps that, listen, I don't need to be on this medication for the rest of my life. And now I know that there are resources out there that can help me taper. Because a lot of people with chronic pain, and I'm saying this anecdotally, you may know a little bit more in the research, uh, when they have chronic pain, they don't want to be on all these drugs all the time. Right. Right. It's, right. And, and I think that's a really big misconception from yeah. the general public. They think yeah. that they're just drug seekers. They just right. have drug seeking behaviors. They don't want to be on this medication. They don't want to have all of this pain. If you have CRPS yeah. or if you have fibromyalgia or you have chronic back or neck pain, you don't want to be taking all this medication. You want to be out there living your life. Absolutely. You know, you, you are echoing a point that I make in almost every presentation I give. Patients do not want to be on opioids. They don't want to have pain. And for many patients, they may see opioids as their only option, or it, it may actually be their only option at the moment. Um, but there is a vast swath, the majority of patients um, who reach out to me that I work with who will say to me, you know, I really don't want to take these. Can you 
help me find alternative ways to manage my pain so that I don't need to take them because uh, virtually everyone, most people who take opioids are also contending with a whole host of negative side effects. Um, and they include risks for medical complexity and polypharmacy. And so they are uh, an uh, imperfect treatment approach. And so my philosophy is always, let's optimize the lowest risk treatments first. Let's do a great job in empowering our patients to best manage, self-manage their pain and symptoms themselves. And once those pieces are optimized, then we can go forward with looking at other treatment options that may be needed, such as interventions or even pharmaceuticals can certainly play a, a, an important role in pain management for some people. But if we optimize patients' functioning and psychology on the front end, we're setting them up to have the best response to any future medical treatment that we will try for pain. So this is really um, a critical message that I bring forward is that we need to, as a profession, all of us treating pain, we need to flip the script and in integrate psychology in the very beginning rather than waiting until all of the medical treatments and approaches have failed and then we try and integrate psychology, it's incredibly demoralizing to patients at that stage because they feel like they're either being blamed or they failed or they're being sent out to pasture to palliative medicine. Or, or they, people think they're crazy. Yeah, exactly. Or my doctor thinks it's all in my head. Mm -hmm. You know, they come and they're like in tears. And, and all of this is avoidable. It's preventable if we start sending the right message that psychology is integral to the experience of pain. It's crucial to best treatment for pain. We want to set you up for success so that you have best response to your medical treatments. And we want to partner with you as being an active a participant in your pain care because the evidence suggests that's what that's what's going to get you the best results and then we point them in the direction of what those evidence-based treatments are and help them engage in them sounds easy to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah right no but that it does make so much more sense to have that on the front end and it's critical, critical. Absolutely. And I know that, you know, you had said it's a big part of when you're speaking and, and when you're giving presentations to allow the audience to really take that message in of how critical that is and how critical it is that these patients don't want to be on opioids and that they want to get better. And, uh, you know, just kind of dovetails nicely into what I wanted to talk about next is that you spoke in Davos, Switzerland this year at the World Economic Forum, which is amazing, and at the Global Solutions Summit in Berlin on the psychology of pain relief. What came out of that? Do you feel like the world is ready for something else aside from a pharmacological treatment? It was an amazing opportunity um, and experience to um, speak at Davos uh, among world leaders on uh, the role of psychology in the experience of pain and in pain relief. And um, 
I feel like absolutely the world's attention is on solutions. We have to think beyond existing paradigms and be focusing more on empowering people. Um, what we know is that our current approaches are falling short. They're falling short in two ways. First of all, in, the, in many countries, Eastern countries or third world countries, there's very poor access to medications at all. So we need to equip those patients with um, these uh, behavioral strategies so that they can be helping themselves on a daily basis in the absence of medical care. On the flip side, in Western culture, in, in the United States and other Western uh, nations, we see that there's huge access to medications and pharmacology, and that that over-focus on medications is similarly working to the detriment of patients. We're spending a huge amount of money, uh, healthcare expenditures, with low yield, or uh, on the flip side, you know, it may actually be backfiring and costing uh, individuals and healthcare systems uh, additional resources because these are ineffective strategies for pain. In, in either case, the solution is to integrate in behavioral medicine, empower the people to have better control over their own experience, and what I found was that there's a receptive audience around the world that regardless of whether you're third world or first world nation, uh, the message applies. And I do believe that the world is increasing in readiness because there is just a profound need. The most recent data suggests that up to 40% of the world's population, regardless of the nation in which an individual resides, 40% are living with ongoing pain of some type. Now, that's not to say they're all you know, debilitated with high-impact chronic pain, but are living with an ongoing pain experience of some type. And that's a huge number. And if we don't have chronic pain today, we will at some point in our lives if we live long enough or someone in our family is living with pain. Pain is relevant to each and every one of us. It touches all of our lives and low risk uh, strategies, cost effective accessible strategies are needed to alleviate suffering worldwide. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just in the United States, I think it's about 90, I think just back and neck pain alone is somewhere in the ballpark of 86 to 96 billion dollars as far as financial impact on in the United States and that's medical treatments missed work you know everything right put together that's a huge sum of money it's a huge sum of money and you know when you combine uh, chronic pain the estimates are 600 $35 billion annually in lost productivity and healthcare costs attributed to chronic pain in the United States alone. It's half a trillion dollars annually. And the costs, the economic costs, pale in comparison to the costs of human suffering. And yep. so just you know, keeping a, a very close eye on, on that piece and that message and always be focusing on how do we equip our patients to best 
control their own experience of pain and reduce their own suffering. This is the role of patient empowerment. It is the role of behavioral medicine and psychological treatment for chronic pain. And, you know, I'm a physical therapist. I'm a clinician. I do work with patients with, a, with chronic pain conditions, like I mentioned before, CRPS, fibromyalgia. And there is a trend now towards integrating psychology into physical therapy treatment approaches. Yes. And what are your thoughts on this? Well, I love it <laughs> because I think that you know, the more siloed we are, um, it's, it's a disservice to our patients. So I love the idea of, you know, cognitive, uh, cognitively informed physical therapy and integrating in some of these principles and strategies. Of, of course, you know, professionals need to be trained appropriately. But I think that if you're not integrating in the, the evidence, the, the research, the wisdom, the, the strategies, if you're, if you're not weaving those into your practice, uh, you're, you're missing the opportunity because it's not just about uh, multidisciplinary pain treatment, and it's even not just about integ integrative pain treatment. We need to become integrated professionals so that every physical therapist has a little bit of a psychologist in them. Um, that's not to say that they're going to start treating, you know, all of these psychological dimensions and getting into a patient's history of trauma or their mental health conditions. But there are some key basic fundamental psychological principles and strategies that physical therapists can learn and integrate into every single session with their patients. And I think the future is very exciting. I, I love um, working with physical therapists and speaking to physical therapists because I feel that they intuitively know this, understand it, they may already be doing it, and are highly interested in optimizing their skill set because they see that it is effective. They see that their patients improve in, by integrating in these strategies. And what is the point where, as the physical therapist, you refer out? You say, you know something, I can, I can do this to a certain point, but now I feel like we're going beyond my scope. Right, right. And so, you know, I, I think a few things. Number one, it's important to uh, assess patients on, on the front end to know their uh, diagnoses, to know their symptom levels. And so ideally, a physical therapist has a sense of an individual's um, emotional functioning or, you know, mental health comorbidities, the, the level of their severity, so that you can be somewhat selective in how you approach things and you can make some gentle recommendations to receive further evaluation and treatment to address some of these other issues if they aren't already doing so. So, so definitely, you know, that piece is, you know, always um, when possible, collaborate with a psychologist, see if you can uh, secure some uh, collateral information on the patient or have a sense of what their current uh, psychological status is. Um, but all of that uh, aside, you can simply assess 
a patient's pain-related beliefs and, and pain-related psychological status. So for instance, you can, you can administer a pain catastrophizing scale, the fear avoidance behavior questionnaire, whatever is your chosen battery mm -hmm. to really understand uh, the pain-specific psychological elements that may become uh, important factors that need to be addressed in the physical therapy session. And so this is where, where physical therapists can gain an additional skill set to be able to better understand their patient's status and what some of those barriers, uh, expected barriers that they can expect in the sessions given their status. They can also talk to the patient uh, specifically about that and say, listen, this, um, I'm recommending that we work in tandem with a pain psychologist because it's clear that some of these elements are at play and I want to be sure that you're going to get the most out of your time with me. We will uh, work best together if we have another professional on our team helping us address this other component. So that's just an example of the pain-specific piece. But I always, uh, always discourage getting into history with patients, particularly around trauma, uh, mental health diagnoses. If you're not a trained psychologist or mental health professional, you're going to quickly find yourself stepping off a cliff. Um, and it is very uncomfortable territory. You trust, you, you can trust that in yourself that when you feel out of your depth, you are out of your depth. And that's important to know the limits around your scope of practice and to refer appropriately. Yeah, and I think that was a great way to uh, phrase this conversation with your patient as well. You know, yes. you can, if you if they do an arebro or they do the Tampa scale or a pain catastrophization scale, whatever it is, you can say, "Hey, listen, I noticed this." So you can address that so that, like you said, you're developing the best partnership you can for the well-being of that patient. Yeah, that's right. And it's also um, helping the patient understand why it's important to address these pain-specific psychological experiences because they can impact their outcomes in physical therapy. Right. Um, you know, and so th this is truly integrated care, and we know that it works best when we address all of these elements. But, you know, most patients, when they have the, the rationale, it, it, you know, the clear understanding of why that's important, uh, um, my experiences are much more receptive versus if someone just says, you should go see a psych the pain psychologist, and then they don't understand why and they may assume that they're being blamed or not believed or it's all in my head. But if you can point to a score and explain to them why 
it's mm-hmm. vitally important to address that. Um, that makes sense. That you that typically registers with patients, and you're also you're, you're showing them their own data. So it's not even just sort of this theoretical concept of how psychology can help. It's like, look, this score is really high, and we want to help you get this score down much lower because the the research tells us that that will help you have a better outcome, a better result. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. What a great way to relate to your patients. Thank you for that. And now as we start winding winding things down here, I know that you also have some DVDs, books, things like that. So can you talk a little bit about that and then what you have coming up? Oh, thanks so much. Um, so I, I have three books now. Two were written for patients. Um, so Less Pain, Fewer Pills, Avoid the Dangers of Prescription Opioids, and Gain Control Over Chronic Pain. Uh, that's my 2014 book. It's also good for, for clinicians. Uh, the Opioid-Free Pain Relief Kit is a uh, patient workbook. It's a really practical workbook um, to help patients apply these pain psychology principles uh, in their daily lives. Um, And then my newest book is published by the American Psychological Association. Uh, Hot off the press, just uh, came out last week. It is psychological treatment for patients with chronic pain, and that is a professional book. So, uh, you know, I mentioned that that's suitable for physicians, physical therapists, psychologists. And, you know, if if you are a well-educated individual who has chronic pain and is interested in some, you know, medical literature, you, you might be interested in this book as well. Um, I also have a, a, a DVD out with the American Psychological Association. It is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Chronic Pain. That just came out this month um, as well. And you know, those are the big pieces that are, are happening um, right now. Um, what's on the horizon um, for me is uh, advocacy work. Um, I will be giving a uh, congress speaking at a congressional hearing awesome. on pain and opioids and what is needed in national pain care to help reduce suffering in the United States. I am uh, giving this. Uh, this um, presentation on October 2nd in Washington, D.C., so being pulled more into national advocacy and um, really informing uh, what's needed to to alter the trajectory of pain care uh, in the United States. Well, it is much needed. That's to say the least. So I think we can all collectively say thank you for for uh, doing that for the rest of us. And Thank now, you, yeah. yeah. And at the end of my interviews, I always, get, always ask everyone the same question. And that is, knowing what you know now in your life and career, what advice would you give to yourself as a new graduate? Well, your PhD. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I wouldn't... I wouldn't change a thing. I um, I spent a lot of years not quite sure uh, what I wanted to do, and so I I think I you know I did the right thing. I think in terms of just allowing myself a lot of time and space to explore 
where my passions were. And I think that that's really important. And I, I, I guess I would just validate my former self and taking uh, a much longer road to arrive at, you know, my final niche. Um, I think it, it just takes time for us to find our passion. And we all go at different paces and and it's important not to force or rush that process or it it could become distorted um, but the last thing I would say to myself going back is that once you uh, are really sure you you've found your passion is find a good mentor as early in the process as possible um, a, a really great mentor and champion is invaluable um, and I uh, you know I didn't source that until later in my career but that's what I would have told my former and in fact, that's what I would share with anyone else who was just starting out as well. And great advice. And your passion is obviously people living with painful conditions, and you are doing so much to help that population of people, me being one of them. So I feel like I can say thank you for the population, you know, on behalf of myself. But before we sign off, if you could tell someone in pain, what are something that they can take away from this talk? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the most important things for people living with pain to hear is that it will get better. It can get better. And that working with a skilled professional, um, a very skilled pain psychologist can equip you with that right information and skills that you can regain control. And it can be easy to fall into a dark and uh, hopeless place or a disempowered place where you, you become dependent on the medical visits or the pills. Um, medical visits and pills may be, you know, part of, uh, of a lifelong journey, but this point of becoming best empowered to control your experience is vitally important and that is available to you. So um, become determined to become educated, to find the right professional and to partner with them so that you can regain that control and move towards living your best life possible. Great advice. Education plus doing the work being in the practice equals that control. That's my biggest takeaway from everything that you just said. And I want to thank you. If people want to find you, you're on Twitter. Um, we'll have links to your, to your Twitter account. It's just at Beth Darnell. Yeah, at yeah. Beth Darnell. And my website's uh, BethDarnell.com. So I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> yeah, easy to find. And we'll have links to everything under... Uh, in the show notes for this episode at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So Dr. Beth Darnell, thank you so much for sharing all this great information with us today. Thank you so much, Karen. It's really an honor to be back as a guest on your great show. And uh, thank you so much. And everyone else, thanks for listening. I know you got a lot out of this one. So have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.